0: Today we're gonna tell some of our favorite private investigator stories. These are some historical cases we've worked on over the past decades. Some of them are gonna be hidden asset stories. Some of them are gonna be interesting human activity type stories. Some of them are going to be cases about clients. And all these are done either with the permission of the client, or some of them are gonna be a little bit kind of generic, vague stories with the details changed. But it gives you an idea of what kind of cases we work on as a private investigative agency and what are the realities of these different areas, asset searches, surveillance, um, hidden activities, and what people really do in private that many times you don't see on the surface. The first one we'll talk about is a hidden asset case that involves scuba diving, casino chips, and a coral reef. So here's what happened. The party that we were investigating was being accused of hiding assets from a spouse in a divorce case and the spouse was suspicious of the person they were divorcing that they said look they had so much money in the bank and then we get divorced and there's no money where'd the money go so we went through some of the bank accounts and we found some regular deductions and some atm withdrawals but nothing that pointed to where the money was, because most of it came out from ATM withdrawals or cash checks made out to themselves. And we wanted to find the money. So we went through some bank statements and some ATM statements, and we found that some of the ATM withdrawals were made at a casino, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars sometimes. And we did some more research at the casino, and we found that this person had a a player's club card at the casino. It's kind of like a frequent flyer account at a casino. And if you have this kind of account, what happens is you get comps. And the comps can be things like free dinner at the the casino dining room, maybe a free show, maybe they'll even send you on a trip. And we found that this person was on their comp card. We got a history of their comp account, of their casino account. And they would go and they would buy Two or three thousand dollars worth of chips, they would gamble for not even a half an hour, and they would go cash out and cash out about the same amount. Maybe they lost a hundred bucks, right? So they would buy two thousand dollars worth of chips, they would cash out nineteen hundred, and there was never a deposit back in their bank account. But many times the cash out didn't come from cash, they would actually keep casino chips, they would take their their ticket and they would actually get chips. So we added up the amount of net outflow of casino chips was about 70 some odd thousand dollars, almost $80,000 of net outflow of chips. These chips were never played. They're never cashed out. Their, their comp account didn't show it. So we we were thinking maybe that's where the, the money is hidden in casino chips. If that was the case, it was going to be a problem because there's no record of casino chips where they are. So part of our case, we were also doing um, surveillance on this subject and he had a boat a little fishing boat he would go out fishing once in a while and on one of the days there was some video we're reviewing video of the surveillance the um the subject was seen bringing a metal briefcase on the boat it didn't make sense he's going fishing he's bringing a briefcase when he came back there was no briefcase so we got information Oh, oh, there's the other thing. On the ATM debit card, there was a purchase of this briefcase from a local department store. And this happened about the time that the casino chip thing started to take place, maybe a month afterwards. So we were able to get from the boat the chip for the GPS navigation for this boat. And we found that on half of these trips, the person was going to the same location marked on their gps so we sent some scuba divers and it wasn't that deep it was about 15 feet and there was a coral reef that had a ledge underneath and sure enough here's that metal briefcase so we didn't touch it it's not our property we can't take somebody else's property but we presented this information to the court and the court in a process called in camera which means that it's outside of the the um the view of this party you know our client went to the court with their attorney only and said, we have this evidence. We want you to authorize us to remove the the briefcase to see what's there. And the court allowed it. So using, you know, certified commercial divers and some, you know, strict protocols, um, we directed and, you know, went out with the, the crew and went and retrieved this metal briefcase. Sure enough, there was $78,000 worth of casino chips in it. And there was also another copy of this person's casino card with the chips. Because I guess he didn't want to keep it on him for whatever reason. And it looked like from what's happening, he was going on regular basis to add more chips to this briefcase. So when presented with the evidence in court, the defendant not only had to give up... You know, in a divorce, normally you have to split the proceeds. So half would go to the defendant, half would go to the, the plaintiff. Well, in this case, the judge was so incensed by this case that she the judge said that all of this ill-gotten gains had to go to the plaintiff which was our client and they had to pay all the fees for the investigation for the scuba divers the commercial all the other fees that went associated with they had to pay for all of that so that was a really good case of finding a hidden asset that was a very unusual type of hidden asset Another case that had to do with a, uh, a fraud case, this was a defendant who was involved with a criminal prosecution. He actually had defrauded a bank, several banks actually, um, by doing fake loans and giving loans to friends and all kind of you know, bank fraud. And the person had filed bankruptcy to try to say, I don't have any money because the bank, the victims, the government, everybody wanted to take money from this person. He was a relatively wealthy person. And he said, I have no money, I'm out of money. But it didn't make sense because you could see from the expenditures that the money had not been spent. We're talking millions of dollars that was defrauded from these banks. So they filed bankruptcy. The bankruptcy trustee also was suspicious. They said, look, this, there has to be money somewhere. So as part of our investigation, You know, we did research of the records, observation. The bankruptcy trustee also authorized an inventory and appraisal of the property because this person had a property, you might even call it a mansion that they lived in that they had to sell for the bankruptcy, but they were allowed to keep personal effects. When you file bankruptcy, they normally let you keep a car and some furniture, some clothes, like normal things. You can't keep, you know, $100,000 Ferrari, but you can keep, you know, reasonable stuff. So the person had filed bankruptcy and we were allowed to do an appraisal. And on this property, there were actually two homes, one big mansion and a smaller, what's called a carriage house. They were allowed to keep the carriage house, move things into the carriage house that they were going to keep and then sell the mansion and split the property. So we did appraisal on both properties and we're at the carriage house. Yeah, sure. There was furniture kind of old stuff there. We took a bunch of photos and documented everything that they were allowed to keep to make sure there wasn't anything else, that they weren't trying to keep any gold bars or anything, right? So when we went through and we're inventorying everything, we had one of our um, experts w- was looking at it and started to recognize, wait a minute, some of this furniture doesn't make sense, right? And then we looked at some other records and some travel patterns. What this person had done was taken almost $2 million dollars in a wire transfer to an offshore bank, they had flown to Europe and purchased almost $2 million worth of antique furniture from Sotheby's auction in London, shipped it to the United States under a different name and put this furniture in their house. And to the naked eye, it just looked like old furniture. Yeah, it was nice furniture and maybe it was antique, but nobody thought it was any big shakes. But it was very expensive, rare, high quality goods that appraised actually the retail appraisal was almost 3 million, but he had paid 1.9 something million. And what his plans were was after the dust settled, the bankruptcy was done to sell off these pieces little by little. And there's no record of these. It's not like a car that has a VIN number or registration. This type of antique really doesn't leave a paper trail as long as you sell it without creating um, any kind of connection to yourself. And And matter of fact, even after the bankruptcy, he had already sold one piece of furniture. It was a um, Heppel-White type dresser that he sold for $80,000, single dresser. And that was his spending money, just st- selling off this furniture. So we were able to document it all in the carriage house. The The government got a warrant. They, they did another research. And because of the fact that he had concealed this from the bankruptcy, he had additional criminal charges added onto the case for... Concealing from the bankruptcy trustee and from not disclosing it to his criminal uh, disgorgement. Another case that had to do with an asset search, and you've heard us tell this story before, so we'll keep this one short. Had to do with a client who um, was being sued for several million dollars, lost a lawsuit, claimed he had no money to the plaintiff. I have no money to pay you. Sorry. Sorry. Well, it was obvious it wasn't true because his lifestyle was high-end, but he had nothing in his name. No houses, no cars, no bank accounts, nothing of substance. So we went through everything with a fine-tooth comb. We went through his bank account, his debit card, all his payments, and credit card bills, and there was nothing there. And no real big expenditures either. But we went, everything, we went through everything thoroughly. We did find an expense for Now this is back in in the early 2000s. So this is 20 something years ago. $35 for a um, store that had a generic name, Gus's Outlet, whatever it was. So we looked it up and it was in a marina. And part of our surveillance had seen this person go to this marina before, but there was no boats on there. There was nothing there. We just figured maybe he we went to see a buddy of his. So we went to Gus's Outlet and we showed this dollar amount on this date and said, "Can you tell what was spent there?" And this was kind of a a marina shop store, and they had some you know retail goods and some snacks and water and things, and parts. It was the parts department for their for their marina repair. And they said, and we also noticed it because it was $45 even. You know, when you buy something at a store, when there's tax, it's $48.22, right? It's never an even amount. So that was a a little bit of a red flag. So the parts guy said, yeah, I can tell you what this is. It's invoice number one, two, three, four, $45. It's in our system. Well, can you tell what was bought? What what was the list of items? He said it was one item. It was a clevis bolt. Clevis bolt? What's a clevis bolt? And... For forty five dollars and he went i'll show you what it is he went in the back and pulled it out it's about a foot and a half long it's a bolt with a slot in the on the uh, threads and a hole in the top and the investigator asked well what is this for he said well this is only used for two things either a large sailboat or a large yacht a motor yacht well can you identify what it went to and he said well in this case when we looked it up, we looked at the part number to match it up with a boat, and it went to this boat, whatever the name of the boat was, out in our in our marina. And, it, and we looked at it, and sure enough, it's a 100-plus-foot yacht. So now we're on to something. He bought a $45 clevis bolt for this yacht. And we're thinking, well, maybe it's a buddy of his, and instead of you know doing him a favor, he bought him a bolt, right? Or his buddy borrowed his card. But we did a little more research, and we did some history on this yacht, and we found that it had been purchased about eight months prior, right around the time that this lawsuit was happening. And it was owned by a Bahamas corporation. So we contacted the closing title agency in the Bahamas and asked them for records on this transaction. And through some conversations and some negotiation, we were able to get a copy of the settlement statement, the closing statement for the shot. And we found a wire transfer of the money to buy this shot. And the money to buy the shot was, you know, Almost two million bucks. And the wire transfer, we traced it back to an attorney that was in Colorado. We traced back this wire to this attorney. Well, this attorney in Colorado turns out was the attorney for this defendant. And after doing some surveillance and seeing him on this yacht many times now, we knew where to look for him um, by himself, not with a buddy that he was staying with on the yacht and contacting the attorney and said, look, if you're hiding money for this person, you know you may be getting in trouble yourself once we broke the dominoes and it fell into place we were able to negotiate for the client for them to get their money for the lawsuit because there was obviously more money than that you don't buy a two million dollar yacht and that's all your money right you have to have money somewhere else so we told him look we can either bring this to the court and the judge and show that you're hiding money or you can just write a check for what's owed and we won't blow it out of the water and because of that negotiation he settled i don't think it was all up front i think it was you know, I think he owed him two million, he paid him a million upfront and then a hundred thousand a month for the rest of the year, whatever it was. But finding that was a good way to get that negotiation. Next one was something similar. Again, you've heard this story before, and then we'll get to some new stories where we were going through some debit cards and we found it again, a bill for let's say $35, no tax, to a jewelry company, a jewelry store. And we looked at the jewelry store and it was in a shopping mall we went over there and they said, what costs $35 in your store? Because isn't, isn't there tax? And they said, well, that sounds like a repair. They looked up the repair bill. Sure enough, it was a repair for a $50,000 Rolex because it had the serial number. When you do a repair on a Rolex, you have to put the serial number. Looked up the serial number and that Rolex was registered to this debtor that was claiming he didn't have any money. Now this debt was a lot smaller. It was only a couple hundred thousand, but he had to explain himself why he had a $50,000 Rolex and couldn't afford to pay the debt. Another great case that has to do with a watch, keeping the same subject, is there's a very famous fraud case out of the state of Florida. There's a man named Scott Rothstein. Scott Rothstein was an attorney who created a fake investment scheme and told people, if you put money into this investment, we'll pay you high returns, 10% a month, 20% a month, whatever it was. And he claimed that the money was going to buy lawsuit settlements and then pay out of that. Turns out, it was all a scam. There was no settlements. Scott Rothstein was was arrested. He was he was tried, convicted. He's in prison right now. Um, and the victims wanted to get their money back. Now, Scott Rothstein had spent a great deal of the money. A lot of this money was long gone. So what the plaintiffs did, and this was done through a, a, a trustee, is hired investigators to look for third-party liability. This is a very prominent and valuable way to get money back. If you put money into an investment or a fraud or a Ponzi scheme or even um, a failed contract, if the principal does not have the money to give you, you can go after third parties. In the Scott Rothstein case, they went after banks, they went after attorneys, they went after all kinds of people. But one of them was a watch dealer And Scott Rothstein was famous for posing with watches all over his hands. In fact, if you do a Google search for Scott Rothstein watches, you'll find pictures of him holding up all these big time watches. And that was his thing. He collected watches. And this watch dealer that sold him a lot of watches was sued under the third party liability um, legal theory because they said, look, you knew that this guy was a fraud or you should have. And you took money from him to buy to sell him watches, so you have to give the money back. So this poor watch dealer was forced to give back hundreds of thousands of dollars. It may have even been a million dollars. And and he didn't get the watches back. He was just out the money. And the theory was he he was he he knew or should have known that this Scott Rothstein was a scam and the money was dirty money, and he took it anyways. So this was another example of a third-party liability and the reason we talk about it now is because it's on the same theme of watches that we just talked about so the next one we're going to talk about is a failed investigation we like to talk about our successes and we'll talk about more of those in a couple minutes but let's talk about one that's a fail this was a case where there was a a used car dealer who was sued for holding people's deposits on cars the dealer was taking deposits on cars and not selling cars and went out of business. And all these people had deposits. And the, some of the people started a legal case to get their money back. Well, this dealer had closed down his dealership. And now he went to work for another dealership. But they thought he was like the actual owner of this other dealership. So he had a lot of inventory. He had maybe 40, 50 cars. Maybe $5,000 each. He had, you know, two or $300,000 worth of cars that were theoretically, his assets that he could sell. Well, we went to look for him. Well, when a dealership holds cars, they don't get titles for cars. They still have the title for the old owner. And they said, well, if he's in possession of them, he should have the assets. Well, we found that he had what's called a floor plan line of credit, which is a line of credit from a bank that funds these cars. Because of this line of credit had a security interest in the vehicles, the vehicles could not be determined to be assets in favor of the claimants. So that was one that was a fail because there was this floor plan line of credit and that inventory was not shown to be liquid assets in favor of the defendant. So that was one that was a was a fail. Next one we're going to talk about is a um, real estate. We're talking about two real estate cases. First one, there was a, a guy who had um, lost a case on a contractor uh, dispute. He was a general contractor that did building, and he was sued by a person who gave him money to build a property. He lost the lawsuit, and he claimed that the house he lived in was not his, right? So we did some title forensics on the real estate records. What we found was, at one point, the title was in his name, but he had since transferred the title out of his name into somebody else's name. Turns out that person was his cousin. So technically, he didn't own the asset. It was titled in somebody else's name. But that prior title ownership was still in the land records. Because what people don't realize is when you have a, uh, a property that's titled, those land records go back in history as long as history survives, and the records are still there. The records aren't erased a new title supersedes the old one, but the old deed is still there for that property. So we found this old deed, it was in his name. He signed it over to his cousin. Actually, he signed it over to a company. The company signed it over to a cousin. He was trying to put some distance in between. But what we found is these ty- these deeds were quitclaim deeds, meaning that there was no compensation involved. There was no change of money. It was just, I'm giving you the property. So that's red flag number one. Red flag number two is, we found the insurance policy for this property and found out that the beneficiary was this subject. And we found that the HOA fees and the insurance and the taxes were all being paid by an account that was controlled by the debtor, the person who owed the money. So why would he be paying these fees for a property that his cousin technically owned? Well, you might say, well, he's paying in in lieu of rent and he's helping his cousin out. But when the attorneys went to the cousin and said, look, we're going to claim that you are what's called a constructive trustee. Constructive trustee is a legal term that tells a person that even though you haven't set up a formal, you know, documented trust, for all practical purposes, this is a trust. You, you're holding an asset for a third party. And if you're doing this to defraud somebody, you can get in trouble right now remember we're not attorneys we're not giving you legal advice but this is what the attorneys in this case did and they told this cousin that look if you continue to be a trustee in theory and you do things to defraud we're going to make you liable so the house that you really do own that you live in we're going to come after that too so this cousin said yeah you're right i'm doing this for my cousin and it's really not, not my house. It's really his house. So once we had the evidence that the insurance was being paid, the HOA is being paid, quit claim deed, all these documents, no money changed hands. There was no consideration. The court did what's called an invalidation of the deed. They called it a fraudulent conveyance for the purposes of evasion of a debt. They undid the deed, put it back in the name, put a lien on it. And the, the claimant got his payment that was rightfully his. We'll do one more real estate and then we'll talk about it well two more real estate we'll talk about a big time investment fraud that was all over the news all over msnbc and fox news and all kind of places about uh a cast of characters from new jersey that was collecting money from people fraudulently allegedly next one was a what i call the boca party house we were in, uh, contacted by a person in new jersey who owned a piece of real estate in boca raton florida that he said, look, I'm get, I own this property. I'm getting some weird stuff in the mail. I want you to do some research on it. So we did some research and we found that what the records were on this property. There was all kinds of mortgages and liens and some weird activity that didn't look like he had anything to do with. So we contacted him once we had the results and said, here's what we found. He goes, well, here's the story. My son graduated high school in New Jersey. He has now moved to Florida to go to college in Florida. Instead of paying for rental for a dorm room, I decided to basically buy a house for cash. Cheap house, 150 grand or so. Then I figure he'll go to college for four years. At the end of four years, maybe the house will be worth a little more money. It's cheaper than me paying rent at a dorm, right? So he bought this house for cash, son goes down there. Well, the son starts getting letters in the mail saying, hey, you see this house is owned for cash. Do you want to get a cash-out refinance? Well, the son had a similar name to the father. He was able to convince a title company and a lender to lend him $80,000 cash-out refinance by pretending to be the father. So now he has $80,000. Well, after a few months of going to college as a freshman, having $80,000 in his pocket, he decided that maybe college wasn't really that much fun anymore. So he quit, and he started spending the eighty thousand. He was able to get another second loan, second mortgage for forty thousand. So now he's got one hundred twenty thousand in his pocket. So now he takes off from Florida and he goes to Europe. Well, in the meantime, he had brought in a few roommates that rented out some of the bedrooms, and they said he said just pay me rent, pay me two or three hundred bucks a month each. He was getting a couple thousand dollars a month, plus he had one hundred twenty in his pocket. Uh, along the same time, a lot of contractors were sending notices saying you want a hot tub for your house you want you know upgrades we'll put a hot tub in no money down it just puts another lien on your house we'll put in you know backyard you know outside kitchen no money down we'll just put a lien on your house well now this house has all these liens taxes aren't being paid and now the the father has no house and he's got a son that disappeared not going to college well Obviously, he had words for his son after that, but that was the story of the Boca Party House. Last story for today, and we'll do another video next week, is a story about a company called NRIA, National Real Estate Investment Advisors. This was a company that advertised all over major um, networks for investment, put in money, get 5, 10, 20% a month investment on real estate. And it turns out it was a big Ponzi scheme. It was billions of dollars down the drain. There's still some prosecutions happening with the SEC and FBI. But when we did an investigation for a client from one of the investors, we found that one of the principals of this company, a person named Scutaro, had a prior history of fraud, very similar situation, taking investments, defrauding. But it didn't show up because he had changed his name instead of... Two Ts, it had one T, or something like that. And the reason we found is because when we did research on all the principles, as we always do, everybody showed up except for him. We couldn't find anything on him. And that's not possible. It's not possible th- that there's nothing. Sometimes nothing means something. So when we started doing some cross-references on... His phone numbers, his emails, his social media, Facebook relatives, we found that his real name had two Ts. Now when we run that and do a background on that, we find that 15, 18 years ago, he had done another scam that was similar, allegedly, that if investors had known about this, this whole NRIA probably wouldn't have happened. But because he was able to conceal his true identity by just changing one letter in his name, he got away with it for several years. And this company um, really went to town with investors. So this is another another example of where paying attention to details and really not leaving anything to chance. You know, they had 14 or 15 executives that we searched for and all of them, you know, had s- records and some of them had a little bit of a borderline, you know, background that was, you know, adversarial, but nothing th- that was that really bad. Scutaro was the one who had the big red flags. And when we found it, it opened up the can of worms. And that's what really made the, the government agencies start to take notice of this scheme, along with the fact they're offering high returns, um, to make um, more inquiries and basically shut them down. At one point, they froze all their assets, closed their accounts, and they're now working on getting the money back for the investors, which takes some of these other procedures and techniques into account, where you look for third parties, you find people that maybe could be liable that aren't direct investors. So those are some of our more interesting and investigative stories for the last couple of decades. Let us know in the comments if you like these kind of stories and what type of questions you have about private investigations or agencies or um, what type of stories you'd like to hear about. Are they the surveillance? Are they the asset? Are they the, um, the unusual ones? What do you like to hear about? And we'll do more of those in the future.